We are going to begin a brand new series today. You know, last week we wrapped up a four-part series called My Church, in which we talked about the four core values that we have as a church that help us accomplish the vision of helping people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. And just real quick, those values are that my church enjoys life. We believe that, that God wants us to enjoy the life that he's given us. Number two, that my church empowers people, that we empower people to live out the calling and the purpose that God has for their life. And number three, that we exist for others, right? We exist for the people who don't yet know who Jesus is. And number four is that my church encounters God. And we took an opportunity to do that last week. This series that we are beginning today, we're going to go through Easter and even just the week beyond, and it's going to be just a little bit different than the series that we've been doing. I don't have any notes for you. I know some of your uh, program guides or service guides may have had some notes in them. That was actually from last week, so just forgot to remove those. You can take that and set it aside or just study it later, you know. Um, but this morning, what I want you to do in, throughout this series is I just really want you to listen. You know, I really want, we're going to talk about the final moments of Jesus' life uh, leading up to the cross. Actually, over the next three weeks, we're only going to be uh, in one day of history uh, in the Bible. We're just going to take a look at the encounters that Jesus had on his way to the cross. And each week, we'll get one step closer to the cross. And we're just going to dive into the story and let it inform our lives. I don't know about you, but I enjoy movies. I enjoy going uh, to the movie theater. wasn't allowed to when I was younger. You know, but then God magically said it was okay, so we could go. And so, um, so I enjoy it. And when I go to the movies, uh, I really just try to, you know, number one, I'm paying some money. So I just try to get lost in it. Anybody else? Like, I'm the kind of person that goes to movies by myself, you know, because I just want to get lost in it. I know it's kind of weird, but um, just get lost in it. And just let the story kind of take you wherever it wants to take you. And that's what I want us to do throughout this series. Just to kind of relax and listen. If you want to write something down, we've got some blank note sheet paper uh, back at the info desk. But just let this story, these stories I should say, inform you. And maybe you can even identify yourself in the context of the story. And let it just kind of speak to your life. I think one of the things we attempt to do in church too often is try to answer every question. And I don't want to answer a lot of questions throughout this series. I kind of want to ask some. And so today, let me tell you what the series is called first. The series is called Vantage Points. And it's just from, through their eyes. And, and a vantage point in life is just simply a position from which you view something or you're observing something. And you can have a high vantage point or a low vantage point. You can have a positive or, or a negative vantage point. But it's just a position from... From how you view something, how it is, is taking place, and you're observing it. And as we take a look at these stories, it's not so much through the eyes of Jesus as it is through the eyes of the person that encountered Jesus, and kind of from the, from the outside looking in, or from the, and just that person in the story. And here's the question that I have for us throughout this series as we enter into the Easter season is, is what is your vantage point of, of Jesus? And what is your vantage point of the cross and this whole thing that we call Easter? From what position are you approaching it and viewing it? I mean, you could be in here and say, I believe in Jesus, and that's good. Maybe, maybe you're just kind of checking this whole thing out, and you're like, I don't really know if I believe. And maybe you're here against your will, and you're like, I'm here because my mom made me, or my boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, whomever drugged me here. And your, your viewpoint, your vantage point of it is different. I just want you to ask you to, to kind of think through that and say, what is my vantage point? Because even if you're here today and you're a believer and you've heard this story many times, I think that's where we can get in trouble a little bit, is that it just becomes kind of rote, right? Like, I know the story. I know Jesus, he, he went to the cross, he died, he rose again in three days, da-da-da-da, that's, that's why I believe. 
and it can just become somewhat disconnected from who we are. And I just want to challenge you. What is, what is that vantage point? From what position are you viewing it? And I want you to think about that today as we take a look at, at Barabbas. That's where we're going to start the story of Barabbas beginning um, our day in the life of Jesus as he approaches the cross. I'm going to read it to you from Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. So if you have your Bibles, phones, tablets, whatever the case may be, just pull them out or we got them up here. But this story appears in all four Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And whenever a story appears in all four of the Gospels, we know right off the bat that it's really important, that it's essential to us, that each each author of the gospel, the Holy Spirit wanted to communicate something through them. Now, I chose Mark because Mark is the most concise, right? Mark, as you read throughout the guy's the shortest gospel, Mark just always gets to the point. He's like, this happened, this happened, this happened, and this happened, and it's quick. We're going to borrow from details from the other gospels, but for the purpose of reading it today, uh, I wanted to go to Mark. So Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. Here's what it says. Very early in the morning, the leading priests the elders and the teachers of the religious law, the entire high council, met to discuss their next step. They bound Jesus, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, You have said it. Then the leading priest kept accusing him of many crimes, and Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges that they are bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing, much to Pilate's surprise. Now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner, any one that the people requested. One of the prisoners at the time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. The crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. Pilate asked him, would you like to, for me to release to you this king of the Jews? For he realized that by now the leading priests had arrested Jesus out of envy. But at this point, the leading priest had stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. And Pilate asked them, he said, well, then what should I do with this man that you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. So to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And he ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip and then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Now for some, or maybe a majority of us in here this morning, that's a pretty familiar passage of Scripture. But what I want to do to kind of gain, I think, a better understanding and a look into really what's going on is I want to rewind five days and kind of talk about how did Jesus get to this position? Because our story opens up with Jesus standing trial before Pilate, a Roman governor. And what we need to understand is is that Israel at this time, because Jesus is in Jerusalem, Israel was under the occupation of the Roman Empire. And they had had come in, overtaken Israel, but what they allowed them to do is to keep their own due process or legal structure in place. And for the Jews, their, their legal system was a system of religious rule. God had given them the law back in the Old Testament and governed every part of their lives. So their leaders, their legal system was headed up by the priests and the teachers. And they had what was called a council, as it says in this translation, or history refers to it as the Sanhedrin. It was like their supreme court, so to speak. And they had rounded Jesus up and accused him and brought him here. Now, what we need to understand is the question of why Jesus is in Jerusalem. Jesus isn't from Jerusalem. Jesus is from Galilee. He was born in Bethlehem. Jesus has come to Jerusalem. He arrived five days earlier because of what is known as the Passover celebration. 
The Passover celebration was celebrated by the Jews uh, for 1,500 years up to this point. And what they were celebrating is when God delivered them out of Egypt. When they were enslaved to the nation of Egypt, God delivered them. They had a Passover meal. And to this day, Jewish people still celebrate the Passover with a Passover meal. What that means is, is that at this time, Jerusalem was full of people. I mean, just teeming with people. Jews from all over the surrounding area and in parts of the known world at the time had come back to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Huge. Now, what's interesting is, is that five days prior to Jesus' standing trial, he arrives in Jerusalem. And he arrives in Jerusalem to a welcoming ceremony where he's riding in on a donkey. These people are worshiping him and declaring who he is and laying branches of, of the palm tree down on the, on the road. That's where we get Palm Sunday, right, which is next Sunday, where we celebrate it. I mean, they're worshiping and they love him. And at this time, people had, were, had begun to really love Jesus. I mean, he was healing people. He's preaching words of life. He's feeding them and, and just doing all kinds of miracles, setting people free from sickness and, and, and possess, demonic possession, all kinds of just crazy stuff. And people began to love him and follow him. And so he shows up. But now, where our story opens, is he's standing on trial. Question is, is, is what, why, and what did they accuse him of? Now, Pilate is the Roman governor put there by Rome to, to govern over these people. Well, the reason that Jesus is standing trial is because the religious leaders, they absolutely hate Jesus. They do not like him whatsoever. And they haven't liked him from the beginning. Part of the reason is is that because Jesus came making some pretty big claims, right? He claimed that he was the Son of God and he was the Messiah. I mean, to us, when we talk about Jesus as the Son of God and we read it, it's no big deal. But to them, that's 2,000 years ago, a guy shows up on the earth, he's 30 years old, and he starts to proclaim that he is the Son of God. He's God himself, right? He's the Messiah, the one who's been promised for thousands of years in their history. This is the claims that he's making. On top of that... He's starting to do these miracles and heal people. People are starting to follow him and they love him. And the the Pharisees and those people are starting to, the religious leaders are losing influence. And as Pilate says in the text that we read, that while he was interrogating Jesus, he he began to understand that it was because of envy that the priest brought Jesus before him. They hated him. They, They were also very upset with Jesus because he was threatening their way of life, their financial gain. See, what happened at this time is the religious leaders were taking advantage of the people. Meaning when the people would come to the temple to make their sacrifice to atone for their sin, the priest would say, hey, your sacrifice isn't good enough. Don't worry, come over here with me. We got some good animals right here for you. And they're two and three times the cost. And if you want to be forgiven, then you got to use our animals. So they were, they were milking the people for money, taking advantage of them, and they were, they were making good money. In that five-day period when Jesus showed up, It was that story, if you remember, where Jesus goes into the temple, turns some tables upside down, and chases people out of it. So he's he's threatening their way of life. So they convene this this trial. Jesus comes to trial amongst his own people before he's taken to the Roman government. And amongst his own people, amongst the Sanhedrin, they begin to accuse him. So what do they accuse him of? Well, they accuse him of blasphemy, number one, because he's claiming that he's the Son of God, that he's the Messiah, utter blasphemy according to them number two they say that he's inciting riots and causing all these trouble but here's number three this is the important one they say that he's committing treason and they say that because jesus is claiming to be the king of the jews and in the roman empire there was no king but caesar 
And so they cannot carry out the type of justice that they want to on their own. They have to take him to the Roman government because their plan all along was to kill Jesus, to execute him. Underneath the legal system, they could not execute a prisoner. Only the Roman government could carry out execution. And that's why they bring Jesus to Pilate, who's the Roman official, because they want Jesus executed. So that's where we're at in our story, where Jesus has now come before Pilate. He stood trial amongst his own people with these accusations, blasphemy, causing riots, and treason. And the punishment for treason under the Roman government, the Roman legal system, was death by execution. And so they bring Jesus before Pilate, and they bring up the charges, and Pilate begins to interrogate Jesus. And they already, he already knows why they brought him here, and he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And I love Jesus' response, right? Jesus responds with, not yes, not no, for sure I am. He says, you've said it, Pilate. You've said it. And then you read throughout the other Gospels, and you find that Jesus, he, he never really defends himself. Right? He never really comes out and makes a case for his innocence or why he shouldn't be there or how he is the rightful king of the Jews. And in one gospel, Paul, or excuse me, Pilate asks him, he says, Jesus, so your kingdom, what about this kingdom is it of this world? And Jesus said, no, my kingdom is not of this world. And, and I'm not here on your authority, Pilate. I'm here on someone else's authority and, just, and God's authority. And just the way he answers the questions is, is quite amazing. But one of the things that Pilate is so amazed at is the fact that Jesus is standing there and the religious leaders and this mob of people that have gathered around, right? The same people worshiping Jesus are now an angry mob. The city's packed full of people and they are now screaming and yelling uh, these accusations against Jesus. And so Pilate is amazed that Jesus doesn't respond. He doesn't say anything. Pilate asks him, he said, Jesus, what do you have to say? What about all these accusations? And Jesus doesn't say a word. I don't know about you, but I would probably be defending myself. Amen. Jesus doesn't say a word. He's quiet. It's in, while Pilate is talking to Jesus, he begins to pick up on the fact that Jesus is innocent. He finds out that Jesus is, is, is from Galilee, a Galilean. So what he decides to do, as you read this in Luke's gospel, is he sends Jesus to Herod. Herod was the king, uh, the, excuse me, more like, he's called King Herod, but he's more like the mayor over Galilee. He sends him over to Herod, and Herod talks to him. Herod had heard a lot about Jesus, wanted to see him, wanted Jesus to do a miracle for him. Jesus didn't do that. But what he found out is is this. He he sends Jesus back to Pilate and says, Pilate, I I find no fault in this man. He's innocent. So Jesus comes back to Pilate. Herod has declared that he's innocent. Pilate feels as if he's innocent. He gets the sense the religious leaders are jealous and angry and just want Jesus dead. And on top of that, Pilate's wife has a dream or a vision, and she comes to Pilate while he's in the interrogation process and says, Pilate, I, I don't know this man, I don't know what he's done, but here's what I do know. I have a vision, and in this vision, in this dream, he's innocent, and we are to have nothing to do with this. Wash your hands of it, Pilate. And I have to believe that probably very rarely did Pilate's wife interrupt an interrogation of a prisoner to share a dream with him, but it was so real to her, so, so visceral for her, she was adamant Pilate had nothing to do with this man. So Pilate has it confirmed. Herod says he's innocent. Pilate believes he's innocent. He understands the people, but here's the flip side of it. Pilate's caught himself in a, in a pretty bad predicament because Pilate had, had done something, according to history, we don't read this in our Bible, but according to history, what Pilate did is he went into the Jewish temple and he raided the coffers or the offering treasury, so to speak, and built some aqueducts with the money that the Jewish people had collected. 
So that caused some big issues with the people, so much so that the Roman authorities said, Pilate, if you don't get this straightened out and, and bring some rest to this, you're going to be out of here. So Pilate has a political quandary in front of him. One translation says that, that although he really believes, or one, excuse me, one gospel, that he's innocent, he knows that if he releases Jesus, it's going to cause a riot, and he can't afford that politically. He can't afford that because there are so many people in Jerusalem right now that it would just be, it'd be political suicide and it would be mass chaos. So Pilate, here's his, here's his thought process. Here's how he's going to work this out. He knows that there, he has a custom each year at Passover to release a prisoner on the basis of the people asking to pardon. Passover was, was basically, that's what the celebration is, being pardoned from slavery, being set free. And the Jewish people request, hey, can you set a prisoner free? And, and so it's Passover time. He takes that to the people and says, here's what we're going to do. You all have a custom that you can release a prisoner. I really believe that, that, that Pilate thought that they would release Jesus. I really, I really think that. I think they would, he, he would think that the people would be thinking clearly and see that Jesus is innocent and he would release him. But the Bible says that what happened is, is that while Pilate's doing his thing, the religious leaders had stirred the people up so much into a frenzy that they had already decided who they, were, who they wanted to have released. And so when he says, who do you want to release? That's when they cry out, Barabbas. That's where Barabbas enters the story. Barabbas has not appeared before this in the Bible, and he never appears after this. He's essentially in every gospel for about a chapter or less. So what do we know about Barabbas? Who is Barabbas? What we know about him is, is this, is that he was a revolutionary, and he was an insurrectionist, and then he committed murder. I don't know about you, but revolutionary and insurrection aren't words that I use on a daily basis. Amen. So insurrection, what that essentially is, is it's a violent uprising in an attempt to overthrow a government, or to overthrow the, the governing authority. So Barabbas is, is a violent man, Leading, leading a revolution, leading an insurrection to overthrow the Roman government and their authority and rulership of the Jewish people. And so in that process, he's committed murder. He's arrested. He's not just charged. He's tried. And his punishment is execution because that is considered treason against the Roman Empire. What history tells us is, is that where, where Pilate would have been holding the, the trial, so to speak, and all these people, is that the jail cell, the prison, so to speak, was very close to that. And in fact, it may have been attached to that. The Barabbas is in a, is in a cell, and that what they believed is, and historically what the Romans would do, because these Romans were, were, they were great at, at killing people and, and executing people. I mean, they were very innovative they, in their techniques of how to execute people. And they, they came up with this... Uh, technique called crucifixion, which was not meant to kill somebody quickly. What it was, its whole purpose was to publicly shame and disgrace and kill somebody slowly and to the to the nth degree of pain. And it was done on a hill where everyone could see. And that jail cell that Barabbas sat in, the window that he had faced was the hill that he would be executed on. And the Bible tells us it's called Golgotha or the place of the skull. That's where they carried out executions. It's like execution hill. So every day as Barabbas sits in his cell and he looks out the window, he sees the place that his life will end. So what we can imagine is, is this, is that Barabbas is sitting in this cell day after day. He's guilty, right? Ain't, ain't no question about it, guilty. But looking out the window, seeing that his death is imminent. And today is the day that execution would be carried out. 
All the plans had been made. Everything had been prepared. There are more people in the city than any time else. What better way for a, a country occupying another country to keep the people subdued and in line than to carry out a public execution? And so as they shout the name Barabbas, it's very possible that Barabbas sitting in his cell hears his name being shouted. Like, like Barabbas, Barabbas. He can't hear the conversation, but he can hear the shouting. And then as as the people shout that they want Barabbas. That's when Pilate asked, well, then what do you want me to do with Jesus? What, what should I do with this king of the Jews? And that's when they shout, crucify him, right? Crucify him. And it gets crazy. And, and Pilate at one point says, I wash my hands of this. I take no responsibility of this. And the people are so angry and so just in a frenzy that they said, his blood will be on us and our children. And they are just bloodthirsty, which is really interesting because of this. The Jewish people hated crucifixion. It wasn't something that they did to their own people. It was something that the Roman government used to subjugate them and to keep control over them and to humiliate them and to cause such fear in them that they would never revolt. And they hate it. They never asked for it. But now they are demanding it from them because of their, their sentiment towards Jesus. So Barabbas, all he hears is his name, Barabbas, and all he hears is crucify him, crucify him. Very possible that he's just hearing that his name and crucify him, and he thinks now the end is really, really near. Right? This is this is this is it. And then Pilate orders, places the orders. Jesus will be go set Barabbas free, and then Jesus will be flogged and crucified. It'll be carried out. And he sends the soldiers to get Barabbas to go to the cell. And based on whatever Barabbas had been hearing when the soldiers came to his cell, you have to believe that it was just. For him, it was time, right? It was, it was it. They come to get him. They bring him out. But he doesn't get executed. He doesn't experience what he thought he would experience. He's completely set free. And he, he's 100% guilty. Now, here's where the Bible doesn't tell us any more information. We can, we can speculate, and, and if you give me the freedom to do so, do so, I'd like to do it. It won't affect our theology in any way. Movies have been made and people have, have kind of wondered what this would look like. And it's a possibility, a very strong possibility that, that Barabbas encountered Jesus on that stage, on that trial, where they bought Barabbas to release him to the people so the people could see that he had been released. Because the Bible says that Pilate released Barabbas to the people. And I have to wonder what it was like for Barabbas to come face to face with Jesus. I don't know if it was 10 feet. I don't know if it was shoulder to shoulder. I don't know if it was across the way. I don't know what it was. But the amazing thing is, throughout this entire process, Jesus is silent. After Pilate interrogates Jesus and asks him the questions, Jesus never says another word. He never tries to defend himself. He never tries to make the point that he's innocent and Barabbas is guilty. He never tries to make the point that he does not deserve what is coming to him and Barabbas is the one who deserves it. He's just silent. Doesn't say a word. Some people paint Barabbas as being this incredibly arrogant and, and vulgar person and maybe he was, I don't know. I don't know what his response was like when they set him free. But I just have to wonder, what was it like? Just maybe, just maybe, 
he had an opportunity to connect with Jesus eye to eye just a few times. And I have to wonder, what did that do in Barabbas? What was it like to stand before the Roman authorities, before a mob of angry people who have just chanted your name and who have, who have purchased your freedom, so to speak, or who guaranteed your freedom by their bloodthirsty sentiment towards Jesus? What was it like to stand there and look at a man who you know is innocent? We don't know if he knew Jesus prior. We don't know any of that. Here's what we do know. We do know that the execution was planned that day. We do know that the cross that Jesus would, would take and, and carry on his shoulders, and next week we're going to talk about Simon of Serene, the man that was forced to carry Jesus' cross, and, and that cross that he was later crucified on, that that cross was made for Barabbas. It was built for him. Remember, this happens all within hours, not within days, right? This is within hours. The preparations had been made all the way up to this point. I don't know what Barabbas thought. I don't know what it did, but I have to believe it did something inside of him. I have to believe that it impacted him in some way to stand there and look at somebody, to really just look at pure grace and forgiveness and innocence. And you are the, and he is the picture of guilt. And what that, what that must have done on the inside of him. Oh, how I wish the Bible would tell us what happened to Barabbas. I really wish in the Bible that, that God would have put an appendix in the back. And you could flip to it and read the, the, the stories of, of what happened beyond. I really wish. He doesn't do that. So we don't know what happened to Barabbas. We don't know if, if he went on to be a follower of Jesus. We don't know that if when he, he left that spot, did he follow the path of Jesus to the cross and watch what should have been his execution and watch someone take that and receive that and never try to get out of it and never try to defend himself and never point fingers. We don't know. And to speculate is good, but it only gets us so far. I asked a question a few moments ago, and I said, who, who is Barabbas, right? Who is he? I told you who he was historically, a revolutionary, leader of a violent rebellion, a man who had committed murder. But I think the real answer to that question is this. Is it that Barabbas, it's not who he is historically. I ask you to find yourself in the story. I think Barabbas is me, and I think Barabbas is you. I really do. I think that we identify with him in the story more than anybody else. Because what I know about me is, is I know that I have guilt. I, I know that I've done things that are fundamentally wrong, that are morally wrong, and that I'm guilty. I know that, that, that I don't deserve freedom, right? I don't deserve Forgiveness, I don't deserve any of these things. And Barabbas was, he, he was fully aware of what he deserved and what he didn't deserve. The question today is not so much are you guilty because I know the answer to that question and you do too whether you want to admit it or not. Is that we're all guilty. That's a fact. We're all guilty of something. And I'm not here to rain on your guilt and make you feel more guilty. It ain't my job. But the question that I have is this. Although we don't know what happened to Barabbas' life, 
We don't know what his vantage point was after that. Is what is what is your vantage point? How do you how do you look at the cross? How do you look at Jesus? I think there's two scenarios here. Barabbas was able to see, I think, both of these scenarios. We can either sit in a cell of our life, feeling imprisoned by our past, imprisoned by all the guilty things that we've done, and we look out the window and all we see is a picture of our our ultimate end, right? That the cross is, is just an end for us. That it is what the Romans intended it to be. Guilt and shame and condemnation and just a reminder of our past. Or the flip side of that, the other vantage point is this. is that the cross, although it was intended to be that by the Roman government, what God made the cross to be is a symbol of freedom and a symbol of forgiveness and a symbol of grace and a symbol of healing and a symbol of acceptance. Because on that stage in history, I believe there's never been a clear picture of the gospel when guilt, ultimate guilt, confronted ultimate innocence and grace. I think there's one thing in our lives that keep us from really connecting with God and really taking that step of giving Him our lives and it's our guilt. Because we're afraid of the response from God with our guilt. Some of us feel like we gotta, we just got to clean ourselves up all the time, right? Like some of you, maybe you, you haven't been to church in a while or maybe you're spotty because you only come when you feel good. You don't, you don't come when you messed up, right? You don't come until you feel like you got to work some stuff out. But what we see on that stage 2,000 years ago is a posture of grace in the presence of guilt that doesn't say a word. I have to believe that the look in Jesus' eye was full of compassion and full of grace. Jesus had already decided that he was going to do what he needed to do. And Luke records us Jesus praying in the garden before he was arrested. Jesus prays a prayer. We talked about it last week, but he prays this prayer. He says, Father, if, if there be any way that this cup can pass from me, that this this what I'm about to do, this crucifixion, my death. If, if there be any way that it can pass for me, God, I, I'll let it pass. But he says this, he says, nevertheless, Father, your will be done, not mine. I'll do it. The reason why Jesus didn't defend himself, the reason why he didn't, he didn't, he didn't try to get out of it is because in that moment, I think not that he just realized, but we see it, that that was his purpose for why he came, was to stand on that stage and allow God to treat him like Barabbas so that he could treat Barabbas like his son Jesus. See, that's the love of the Father. is to treat us as his son, not as the sinner that we are. Yes, we have to accept it. Yes, we have to receive it. But the message of the gospel is good news. The message of the gospel is your guilt comes face to face with the grace and the forgiveness and the freedom of God. And every time the answer is yes. Yes. Like I said, that cross, that beating that Jesus took, that was prepared for Barabbas. It was never prepared for him. And Jesus took it. There's a, an old song that is a way older than me. And I said this first service. Seth may not know it. He may know it. I'm not going to ask him to sing it. But it's an old song and the words are simple. Grace, grace, God's grace. And one of the lines is, 
grace that is greater than all my sin. It's a beautiful song. If I could sing, I'd sing it for you. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. You need to know today, every day of the week and twice on Sunday, God's grace is greater than your sin. God's grace is greater than your biggest weakness. God's grace is greater than your biggest screw-up. God's grace is greater than anything you can get yourself into. Anything. I can't answer for you this morning what your vantage point is. I can tell you that you're guilty. Not because I know it, just because God said we all are. But I can't answer for you what your vantage point is. I don't know if you're sitting in that cell looking at the hill and it's just guilt and shame, condemnation. But all I do know is I would much rather it be on the other side and saying, yep, that was reserved for me. But then you realize that God said this, that he, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We might become. We don't do it ourselves. We receive it. So yes, we're Barabbas. Yes, we're guilty. But yes, in the same token, we're set free and forgiven and given the freedom to live our lives. These weeks won't be filled with a lot of points and applications and things you can write down and and diagram. I just really hope that you think. Really hope that you ask yourself some questions. Because the last thing I ever want for any of us, whether you're new, it's your first day, or you've been doing this for 50 years, is that the gospel becomes wrote. That it becomes just, yeah, I heard it when I was five. Yeah, I've been believing it for 50 years. My hope is that when we hear the message of Jesus, that it still does something to us, right? That it still brings us to that point where we say, I don't deserve it. But that doesn't keep me from receiving it. Right? That we still, it just lights a fire in us that says, Jesus is the very best of heaven. Very best, and God gave it to us. Could you bow your heads? I'll pray before I keep going. I just want to ask if there's anybody in here today you'd say, you know what? I'm guilty. I know I'm guilty. I want to give my life to Christ. I want forgiveness. I want grace. I want freedom. I need to make a change today. I need to turn from whatever it is that I'm doing. If you're here this morning and you say, I want to follow Jesus, could you raise your hand? I'd love to pray with you. I'm not going to have you come to the front or embarrass you. Just raise your hand. Thank you so much. Thank you. Anybody else? Raise your hand. Thank you. You say, why would I raise my hand? Just acknowledging externally what the Holy Spirit is saying to you internally. Thank you. I'm going to pray. Anybody that raised your hand, anybody in here, you can just pray with me. Heavenly Father, just thank you for Jesus. And I ask you right now to forgive me. I know that I'm guilty. I know that I haven't been living the way that I should. But I know that I need you. So I give you my life. I ask you to come into me and just change me from the inside out. Change my wants. Change my thoughts. Change everything about me. Thank you, Father, for saving me. My second thing is, I'm not going to have you raise your hand. I'm just going to pray for this. I'm just going to pray for everybody in here that's struggling.
to receive God's love. Anybody in here that's just struggling to know that God loves you and he forgives you and it's not on the basis of your past, it's not on the basis of your good works, it's on the basis of Jesus. Father, we just come to you right now in this place and we thank you for your freedom. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for Jesus. I pray over every individual in here that is sitting in their seat feeling condemned and feeling broken and is hurting and feeling that, God, you could never love them or they've done too much. Lord, I just pray right now by the power of your Holy Spirit, they would know that your grace is greater than all their sin and that your answer to them every time they come to you is yes. Your word declares that we can approach the throne of grace and that we can receive mercy and grace in our time of need. Father, you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. And we thank you for that this morning. And just thank you, Lord, that this message of the gospel may never become just standard or just rote, but may it come alive in us and in every area of our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.